Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, a podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a brand new middle grade novel. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider, should we reimagine the way we approach the craft of writing and the way it's taught? What are the downsides to our view of storytelling now, and how can we improve it? Author and professor Matthew Salisis takes on these questions in his new book, Craft in the Real World, Rethinking Fiction Writing and Workshopping. The book is already a national bestseller and an Esquire Best Book of 2021. I suggested that we interview Matthew after I learned that Craft in the Real World takes on the traditional model of workshopping writing. I have been in a lot of this style of workshop. What happens is a writer submits a piece to be considered, and then during the session, everyone else talks about that piece while the writer just sits there and listens and isn't allowed to say a word until the very end when they get to ask a couple of questions. I really had never thought about the downsides of this kind of silenced workshop, but they're real. And I'm so glad we got to talk about them and so much more with Matthew. I am too. I don't have nearly as much workshop experience as you do, but what little I have, I never enjoyed, (laughs) which (laughs) is one reason why Matthew's book really appealed to me. Yeah. Here's a little more about Matthew. He's also the author of the best-selling novel, The Hundred Year Flood, and the Penn Faulkner finalist, Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear. His previous books include I'm Not Saying, I'm Just Saying, Different Racisms on Stereotypes, the Individual, and Asian American Masculinity, and The Last Repatriate. His essays can be found in Best American Essays 2020, NPR Code Switch, The New York Times Motherlode, The Guardian, and other venues. Matthew is an assistant professor of English at Coe College, where he teaches fiction writing and Asian American literature and studies. He earned a PhD in literature and creative writing from the University of Houston and an MFA in fiction from Emerson College. We started by asking Matthew about his early experiences as a writer and what it was like when he started attending writing workshops and learning about craft. I started writing young or just like started my love of writing young. A few years ago, I found this thing that my parents had saved from, I think, fourth grade. And it was like a a little book that we made in class bound with like one of those spiral binders. It had like a leaf for cover. I'm not really sure why, but it was a story about um, a stingray who had like a I don't know, like the planter's peanut. He had a, like a top hat and yeah. a cane. Uh, <laughs> and he had lost like the shine and his the sparkle in his smile. And so he had to go Aww. looking for the smile. I remember reading this over and thinking, wow, this is this is the best thing I've ever written. I'm never I'm never gonna top this. <laughs> you peaked. <laughs> it does sound really profound for a nine-year-old you. Yeah, that's yeah. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I started studying it, I guess in undergrad. I took poetry classes at first. I learned a lot from just thinking really carefully about the language and the words choices that I was making and rhythm and meter and and things like that. I don't know. I had less fun, I guess, 
the <laughs> fiction workshop than I did in the poetry workshop. The poetry workshop was so, it just encouraged a lot of like experience experimenting and trying out different things. We could go over many different poems, of course, in the same time period where it would take uh, just like one story. And so people were kind of able to to produce large volumes of work and that meant to kind of trying all kinds of different things versus the two stories I think we workshopped that year. I was in a, a, like a silenced workshop, so I couldn't kind of explain myself. I remember once in my undergrad workshop, my professor <laughs> went on a little bit of a tangent about how much she hated the word perused and not how I shouldn't use the word perused. I was thinking the whole time, I don't, I don't remember using the word perused. And then finally, another student in class spoke up and said, oh, I think this is just a typo. I think it's supposed to say pursued. Oh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I wasn't able to say that for myself. For so, yes, yeah. <laughs> Oh so gosh. there were some, you know, there's just some things that the workshop had trouble with just because we couldn't talk. Right. So was there a moment, and perhaps this was the moment, when you first thought, mm, we could improve the way this subject is taught or the way workshop is run or something? No, I think like many students, I took it for granted that this was just how it was done. You know, I had never seen any other kind of model anyway. Students tend to believe uh, in the authority of their of their professors who are, are experts in their fields. And I wasn't until at least the MFA program that I was in where I started to question things. I remember one time in my MFA, we were workshopping a person's story and we spent like five minutes arguing over whether a person could bicycle a certain distance in a day. The whole time I was thinking like this... <laughs> Can we just ask him? Can we just ask, like, you know, like, why do we have to have this conversation? It's probably totally useless to the author. And at the end of workshop where the author is, was allowed to speak, he said, I did this bike ride. And, you know, I was just kind of writing about myself. Like, this character is me. The bike ride is something that I did. <laughs> oh, it's all man, real. We, and, oh. and we spent my entire workshop period talking <laughs> yes, about yes, something yeah. completely not helpful. Yeah. Yes. Do you have any idea why that was the model that, came to be? Was it about power? I have another pet theory. It's that <laughs> when you take, you know, 12 middle-class Christian, Protestant, probably white, straight, able, cis men, and they've been reading the, almost exactly the same canon of literature, and you put them in a room and they're also kind of empowered in outside life all the time, right? And they, they're used to being able to speak their mind and being heard, then it might make sense in a workshop setting to have somebody in that position of power in their outside lives uh, be silent and listen to other people who actually represent exactly their ideal audience and who have a very similar background and literary taste. That model maybe makes sense in that situation. It's just that we, you know, have moved so far past that and workshops are far more diverse. One of its greatest tools is its diversity, which is really hurt by the silence model. Another large reason I think is just kind of the Writers' Workshop was trying to establish its place within academia. Um, it was trying to establish a set of rules that could be easily recreated from workshop to workshop. And 
those kinds of things, you know, are so kind of wrapped up in institutional power and the power of a, a kind of dominant majority that it's kind of no question that I would, might get into the workshop. I love this idea that the whole silenced workshop model came about because white, straight, able, cis men had to be told, like, sit over there, be quiet, and just listen. <laughs> of course, it is sad that they were listening to people just like them in order to write for an audience just like them. And that we got stuck in this model, which prevents writers from diverse backgrounds from saying, wait, your assumptions are flawed, or I'm writing for a different audience than the one you're assuming. Let me explain. I know it's insane when you think about it, this idea that you have to disempower an artist in order to support their creativity. It's just so counterintuitive. And at this point, it's really counterproductive. Yeah. And of course, the effect of white Western expectations aren't just seen in these workshop formats. Matthew talks in his book about how important they've been to the content of the stories that have been told and that keep getting told. Here's one sentence he uses as an example. She was absolutely sure she hated him. If you read that sentence at the start of a book, what do you assume about how she'll feel at the end of the book? She's going to love him by the end of the book, right? She was absolutely sure she hated him. Mm -hmm. But that's problematic. Why shouldn't a woman be absolutely sure that she hates a man from the beginning of the story to the end? Who came up with that trope? You mean this trope about not believing a woman when she says she doesn't like something? Right, exactly. I don't know. <laughs> right. It's very deeply ingrained. It's what we expect. And it's also what we writers assume that our audience expects. Yeah. So it keeps getting written and reinforced. It does. I mean, it doesn't have to be gendered. You could have a man protesting too much about disliking another man or a woman. And of course, this is just one particular culture's use of irony, but it does often arise in that gendered context. Right. We asked Matthew how we can break from this cycle of relying on cultural expectations as we read and write, and how we can stop reinforcing them through our storytelling. The timing of our interview is relevant to the answer that he gave. We were speaking a few days after the horrific shootings at three spas in the Atlanta area. Six of the eight murder victims were women of Asian descent. That's all useful background to have in mind as you listen to Matt's answer. Here it is. I think the book is trying to say we should be more conscious about which cultural expectations we're engaged in and whether we really want to be engaged in them or not. Something like that might have fewer consequences on the world than, say, how the media is going to address the latest um, shooting and the shooter's identity and the story behind why that person went on a killing spree. These stories are, of course, informed by all these other stories that we know, including the stories of shooters in the past and their victims and what kinds of people are shooters and which kinds of people are victims, but also just informed by kind of greater and larger stories in society about who should have control and who should not have control, whose lives are more important than other lives. Many times after a shooting or something, we'll hear the kinds of stories that the shooter was telling himself, maybe in a blog form or a diary or things that they've been saying uh, on the internet or, you know, with their friends. And those stories 
form expectations that lead to the actions that happen. And the issue I think that resonates with what you just said with respect to Atlanta was the coverage of what the killer said as an excuse and how it was treated fairly straightforwardly, at least in some of the coverage, you know, this sort of notion the killer said he was having a bad day and that he was a sex addict. The lack of questioning by some and just sort of the repeating of that without questioning as a possible explanation. There were so many cultural and gendered assumptions wrapped up in that. And in fact, when you saw the actual victims, the sexualized nature of it seemed undermined by their age. It reinforces this point that you're making about how things are presented and how that reinforces tragedy. Yes, yeah. Sorry, I just went on and on. Um, and my job is to ask questions. No, that's, I mean, <laughs> I think that's a great point for sure. Um, when I'm talking with my students, I'm always telling them, you know, you can use these expectations to your advantage by either upholding the expectation or undermining the expectation and considering which kinds of expectations certain audiences have. Um, the story that the shooter told in Atlanta was a story tailor-made for a certain kind of audience. And other audiences, you know, the Asian American community, for example, did not find it a very compelling story because it does not kind of align with what they know as the truth behind these expectations. But a certain community that finds these expectations more in line with their experiences or within the stories that they are engaging in all the time on TV or movies or with each other might then find that the story upholds the expectations they already have. And so they find it easier to believe those stories. Right. Yeah. And I just want to underscore a point that you make so clearly in the book, which is that how stories are related has real world impact, whether it's how a story is told in the news after an event like this or how a short story or novel is written. It translates to very real impact on actual people reading or listening to those stories. Yeah. You know, when I was a student talking about craft, it often seemed as if craft was within this kind of vacuum space, as if we were kind of, you know, putting pieces of wood together. We never thought about where the wood came from or how it's sourced, whatever, et cetera. But of course, those things inform how we're working with the tools that we're working with. So I always felt as if there should be more attention paid to the consequences of our decisions in the world and where those decisions come from, you know, in the historical and cultural context of those decisions. It feels like there are so many beliefs about writing that feel like they're given to us from on high because they've been repeated so often, you know, show, don't tell. Kill your darlings. (laughs) We hold these truths to be self-evident that darlings must be killed, you know. (laughs) I know. My poor darlings. It seems like a, you know, just a radical idea to start questioning, oh, maybe not. You know, or or who who's who's making that suggestion and why do we need to accept it? And actually maybe we don't need to accept it. It seems radical, but I, I think that students come in, my undergrads seem to come in questioning those things. But 
by repeating those things over and over again and by reinforcing the values through the stories we choose and how we talk about those stories, what we hold up as good writing and bad writing, then we are all the time making it harder for students to question those things that are usefully questioned. Mm -hmm. I think one really good example you give in the book of an element that highlights the influence of the dominant culture on craft and also reflects the connection between craft and the real world is this issue of a character's agency. There's something that feels realistic and satisfying to some people about protagonists changing their environments and changing themselves, right? Westerners, for white Westerners in particular with privilege, that can feel quite realistic and satisfying. But for others, it doesn't, feels neither. So can you talk a little bit about authors who have rejected that formula or who have just written other kinds of books? Yeah, sure. One of the books that really opened things for me was The Art of the Novel by Balan Kundura, who writes a kind of alternate history of even the kind of white Western European novel, tracing it from Cervantes to Kafka. His main point is about agency. It's that despite the tendency in psychological realist literary fiction to have a character have control over what happens in the story and um, have a fatal flaw that causes the problems that they then have to face and that they on their own are able to conquer those problems and become socialized and uh, incorporated into society, there's another way of looking at the history of the novel, even within that context, that goes through coincidence and systemic rules and violence and things that are beyond a character's control. Many of the things that happen in Don Quixote come out of kind of nowhere, are very coincidental, represent a worldview that is much more based around fate Kafka's worldview is we are trapped in this kind of system that is controlling everything. And despite not even knowing what we have done wrong, we can be right accused of these many crimes that we've committed against that system. There are those questions even within that one tradition. And there are many traditions in which fate plays a much larger role. Uh, another book that was helpful for me was Tiger Writing by Kiss Jen, and she talks about differences between Western storytelling and Eastern storytelling, and she calls it independent and interdependent storytelling. She says when she was reading American novels, there's so much control that the characters have over things, and that was very appealing to her as a reader. But when she was talking to her own family, and she kind of cites this autobiography, I guess, that her, I think her father wrote uh, that has is like two-thirds description of their family history and their family home, and then like finally gets around to himself in the end. Those things are present all the time. I mean, even now, my TV diet consists almost entirely of uh, Korean dramas, and I love them so much, but so many of them are very fate-driven. They're like 
this kind of thing has happened in the past and now these characters have been like reborn and are facing the exact same problem and it takes you know <laughs> 16 hours for them to finally change one thing right like they keep repeating everything that happened in the past until finally they're able to change the one tiny thing that allows them to be together this is of course a very just a very different way of thinking about what drives the story and like what drives us as human beings and what determines our decision making yeah, that, that reminds me as a stark contrast, the Harrison Ford movie on Air Force One, where oh, right. he takes down an entire terrorist organization alone. You know, every decision changes everything. Yeah, it's a very different model. It's a very, yeah. So you say in the book, the fiction writer must break down what she thinks she knows about her craft in order to liberate it. What kind of rethinking do you think would help? And can you say more about your choice of the word liberate here? Sure. I think we're just trying to get free and the stories that we tell are a large part of that freedom. And the more we're telling those stories without being conscious of why we're telling them and the repercussions they have, then the less free we are as people and also as storytellers. I think liberation often starts with freeing yourself from the system in order to make choices outside of that system. And that means often breaking the system down. The first step in that is usually seeing the system at work for the first time. Um, yeah. You talk about the author Jennifer Riddle Harding and what she calls masked narrative. She was talking about how Black authors have had to write to two audiences at the same time a white audience they needed in order to have a career and a black audience who would be able to understand kind of a second hidden meaning. Can you say a little bit more about that? And do you think it applies to other writers of color as well and what the impact is? I hate to generalize things, but I, I think you can see, especially in older Asian American literature, kind of talking out of two sides of the mouth too. When I teach, for example, America's in the Heart by Carlos Blosan, uh, who's a Filipino-American writer. That book came out in like 1946. Mm -hmm. It's full of horrific experiences and random attacks on Filipinos. They get tar and feathered at one point. The police will just like show up in a pool hall and start shooting people. There's a couple of policemen who, who ask him first if he is Filipino. And then when he says yes, they beat him and like take the $1 in his shoe. And they're like, well, I guess we can get a drink with this at least. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of that book, though, there's this like really famous passage where the author talks about how amazing and wonderful and, and free America is, scholars have often read that as a way to kind of appeal to a white audience while kind of slipping in the things that are really true to the experience that he was having. You know, I think Harding makes a point that it's kind of especially true for African-Americans who, you know, have to speak to each other in ways that also are satisfying or not stirring the pot of, you know, going back to slavery, like of slave owners, you know, in order to talk honestly, there's also a way in which you're, they had to talk thinking about whether or not they could be overheard at certain times. And so there's a constant 
engagement with the audience that could make or break their public lives and also sometimes their private lives and also speaking to fellow African-Americans who would accept and want deeper truths. You talk a lot about intended audience and being conscious and about who your intended audience is. I wrote a novel, a middle grade novel with a protagonist who has type one diabetes. And I was always very clear in my mind that the audience for the book was nine to 12 year old kids in general, but mm. kids with diabetes and other disabilities in particular. Yeah. And so in the book, I included explanations of things that the protagonist did that were related to diabetes. So for example, how her insulin pump works and what kind of information the pump might give her and what she has to do with that information. And obviously kids who have diabetes don't need those explanations. Right. But I knew that readers who don't have diabetes would be confused if they didn't have those explanations. So this is my long-winded <laughs> prelude to my question, which is, how do you think about that balance where you're writing for the intended audience, but also the actual audience is going to include people who are not necessarily in that more narrowly defined audience? Personally, I think... We live in this amazing age when people can look up any information on the internet. I also think readers are super amazing people who are often like very generous. And, you know, you usually don't go to a, a book like wanting to hate a book or wanting to find problems with it. You go to it offering a part of yourself and investing in the page and the characters. For me personally, I think partly because the break there for the ideal audience where they think suddenly this book isn't for me anymore. I'm trying not to explain things that my ideal audience would already get and hope that if people really wanted to find out more about it, they would just, you know, use the internet. I have mixed feelings about what Matthew said here. On the one hand, I hate over-explaining books, and I totally agree that we can trust the reader, the reader is smart, the reader can figure things out. And also that by explaining things the intended audience already understands, it signals to those readers that the book isn't for them. On the other hand, I do want the audience for my book to be wider than just kids who have type 1 diabetes, and literally no one who doesn't have the disease will understand some of the things in the book without some kind of explanation. Well, yeah, it's really tough, particularly in this kind of context, because part of the reason you wrote the book is to really convey the full experience for kids who have diabetes, which is a fascinating and important and very different experience from what most kids are going through. So if you don't explain it, you know, right. then you don't accomplish that. On the other hand, of course, you want kids who have diabetes to love the book. So you don't want to make them feel like this book isn't for them. By the way, I think you walked that line incredibly well. I'll just say. Thank you. Very Thank welcome. you very much. I appreciate <laughs> that. Also, I think the fact that we're talking about middle grade books here is relevant. I mean, nine-year-olds don't usually have free access to the internet. Yes, very true. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's fair to say that kids may need more contextual support than adult readers, but as writers, it's very important to be mindful about the kind of support you're giving and what you might be signaling. Right. Okay. I think 
That's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Matthew at matthewsalises.com and on Twitter at Salises. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Book Dreams is part of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and